0: On December 31st, 2019, the United States Embassy in Baghdad, Iraq, was in danger. A mob of Iran-backed Hezbollah militiamen stood outside the embassy, chanting, Death to America, smashing windows, and even hopping over the outer fence. While there were no deaths or injuries reported, this brief altercation would soon culminate in the assassination of Iranian General Qassem Soleimani as well as Iran's downing of a Ukrainian passenger jet, killing all 176 on board, and while the embassy attack was averted, many feared during it that the situation would end similarly to how it once did 40 years earlier. On November 4th, 1979, the United States was in the midst of a crisis. 52 American diplomats and security guards had been taken hostage at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. Unbeknownst to them, this would not be a short siege. It would be a grueling 444 days before the U.S. severed diplomatic relations with Iran and the hostages were freed The hostage crisis was just one result of the ongoing Iranian revolution, which put a fundamentalist Islamic government in place in Iran. However, the revolution certainly did not come out of nowhere. It was an inevitable consequence of the events of the previous 25 years. It all really started back in the 1950s, when the US and UK led one of the most impactful operations in modern history. I'm going to tell you all about it, Right now, on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the second episode of this podcast, and I'm glad that you enjoyed the first episode enough to stick around here. I hope you'll like this one. It's a bit less obscure than my last episode, so try to keep your ears open for anything that you might know about. One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. Starting in 1906, Iran was a constitutional monarchy, with power split between the Prime Minister and the Shah, or King. The position of Shah dates back to the Persian Empire of the 6th century BC. Iran was a democratic nation, in which the Prime Minister was elected to follow the will of the people. The country was on fairly good terms with the United States and Europe, and it was also the second Muslim-majority country to recognize Israel as a sovereign nation. However, what really made Iran attractive to potential allies was what it had to offer. The reason why much of the Middle East is so wealthy today is that most of the region basically sits atop a massive oil well. Iran is one of the countries that benefits from this. As of 2019, they have the third largest oil reserves in the world, surpassed only by Venezuela and Saudi Arabia. The British began to capitalize on this in 1933 when BP established the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which brokered a deal to help Iran drill for oil in exchange for a portion of the profits. However, the British soon began to assert greater control over Iran's oil industry, taking more of the profits for themselves, while Iranian workers received very little. This caused outrage in Iran, and soon, it caught the attention of Prime Minister Mohammad Mosaddegh. In 1951, the Iranian parliament passed a law nationalizing the oil industry, which was immediately signed by Mosaddegh. As a result, the AIOC was kicked out of the country, and Iran severed foreign relations with Britain. Furious at this supposed betrayal, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill brought this news to the United States, asking for help in retaking control of the Iranian oil industry. Despite this, The charismatic Mosadei was able to charm President Dwight Eisenhower, gaining his support, albeit without Britain's knowledge. While this was a major victory for Mosadei and his supporters, one crucial mishap would bring it all down when the Communist Today Party, supported by the Soviet Union, proclaimed its support for Mosadei. Mossadegh wasn't even a communist himself, but in the midst of the Cold War, this communist support for him became worrying for many Westerners. British Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden took advantage of this new endorsement by convincing Eisenhower that Iran was colluding with the Soviet Union. This idea finally earned Britain the American support they wanted, and the two nations began planning a coup d'etat to oust Mossadegh. The MI6 codenamed the Revolt. Operation Boot. The CIA codenamed it Operation Ajax. The intelligence agencies needed to start by getting an interior Iranian official to support the coup that began encouraging the then Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi to help them. While the Shaw initially resisted the Western efforts, he conceded, after being convinced that he would be given substantially more power, along with $5 million. Major General Norman Schwarzkopf Sr., the former superintendent of the New Jersey State Police, played a large part in getting Pahlavi on board with the idea. The CIA and MI6 began bribing Iranians to protest against Mossadegh, so as to justify their own cause. The Shah was kept in a hotel in Italy for the time being, keeping him safe from the coup. Then, on August 19, 1953, the revolt happened. The army seized government buildings, proclaiming its support for the protesters. CIA Director Alan Dulles and MI6 Director John Sinclair accompanied Pahlavi on a plane back to Iran where he would be put back into power. He appointed Fazlola Zahedi, one of his loyalists, as Prime Minister. Mozadeh, meanwhile, was arrested. He would be tried and sentenced to death for treason, but the Shah commuted his sentence to life under house arrest. Mozadeh died on March 5th, 1967. The coup was successful, and the parties involved certainly reaped the benefits. The Shah had even greater power than before, the United Kingdom had the oil revenue flowing once again, and the United States had a strategic ally in the Middle East to promote secularism and anti-communism. The Shah began a series of secular reforms, much to the chagrin of fundamentalist Islamic clerics. Pahlavi's reforms were especially beneficial to Iranian women, as new laws were created to protect girls from child marriage, ensure public education for women, and give women the right to vote. These reforms still show. To this day, women make up a majority of college students in Iran. The nation's literacy rate also tripled by 1970, thanks to the Shah's wider reforms of education, and free lunches were implemented for impoverished students. In addition, the government used its oil money, as well as the aforementioned grant from the U.S. to buy land from wealthy feudal landlords and redistribute it to peasant families, eliminating the tenant farming system, which was essentially slavery. A national highway and public transport system was also created, bringing even more praise towards the Shah. In 1967, Pahlavi made headlines by sending a letter to King Faisal of Saudi Arabia encouraging him to hold discos and let women wear miniskirts. The Shah became an international celebrity due to his secular reforms as well as his enviable, lavish lifestyle. However, this extravagance represented a darker aspect of Pahlavi's rule. Much of the country still lived in poverty, while the Shah flaunted his riches. This was especially true in 1971, when Pahlavi decided to celebrate the 2500th anniversary of the Iranian monarchy. He built an enormous tent city filled with bronze and crystal statues, as well as Limoges porcelain plates for foreign dignitaries to eat off of. The $22 million city was surrounded by poor villages, and photographs of this income inequality covered British and American tabloid newspapers. The Shah's reign was also marked by authoritarianism and censorship, as well as his infamous secret police force. This elite group was tasked with silencing Pahlavi's opponents by any means possible. Many Islamic clerics were outraged by Pahlavi's secularism, and some social liberals took staunch issue with his grip on power. The Shah's opponents began rallying around a common leader, a Shia clergyman who had returned to Iran after being exiled for opposing the shah. His name was Ruhollah Khomeini. Pahlavi was at first able to control protests using his secret police. However, tensions reached a peak after a college student was killed by the police, The Shah's health also began to fail him. He was diagnosed with lymphoma in 1974 and given a prognosis of six years to live. He stopped making public appearances and he didn't see himself as mentally strong enough to lead Iran anymore. Pahlavi, his wife Farah, and his 19-year-old son, Crown Prince Reza, were granted asylum in Egypt by President Anwar Sadat and on January 16th, 1979. The 2,500-year-old Iranian monarchy officially ended when the Shah left Iran for the final time. The Pahlavi family would live in Egypt until the Shah's death in 1980. Farah and Reza then moved to Bethesda, Maryland, where they remain to this day still speaking out against the new theocratic government. Khomeini was declared supreme leader of Iran, and while this was a major victory for the Shah's opponents, they sought further justice. Khomeini and his supporters pressured Sadat to extradite Pahlavi to Iran for trial and likely execution. However, outrage soon turned towards the United States after the Shah was admitted to New York Presbyterian Hospital for cancer treatment. Iran once again requested Pahlavi's extradition which the U.S. denied. Then, on November 4, 1979, during a demonstration outside the American embassy in Tehran, a group of Iranian college students, supported by Khomeini, hopped over the embassy's fence and entered the building. There, they took 52 hostages and began one of the scariest years in U.S. history. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I really wanted to connect a topic to a current event going on right now, and I think this one tied in nicely. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's amazing sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long.